2: Let me share some news stories with you from recent years. In a rare interview, Bob Dylan likened songwriting to the way Michelangelo discovered figures inside a block of marble. Meanwhile, a Swedish engineering firm used artificial intelligence to mimic Michelangelo's style, producing a 21st century sculpture. In the US, there was a furore when a head teacher showed young children the statue of David in his nakedness without first asking parents' permission while art historians around the world debated whether the artist had painted himself into the Sistine Chapel like a god. Across the pond, the Vatican received a ransom demand for 100,000 euros for the safe return of letters written by Michelangelo, and medical researchers considered whether the artist had osteoarthritis in his hands. Oh, and there was a flashback to a news story from 1972 when a man armed with a geologist's hammer attacked Michelangelo's Pieta, Leading to a major restoration project and the construction of a bulletproof glass screen to protect the piece thereafter. There are literally thousands of stories. In fact, it's probably easier to say that despite being born almost 550 years ago, Michelangelo is never out of the news. So, what is it about this sculptor, painter, architect, and poet? Full name, Michelangelo di Ludovico Buonarroti Simoni that captures our imaginations. Are we an age that loves to hark back to the past, or has Michelangelo always been newsworthy? To help us understand Michelangelo and the following he has created, I'm delighted to welcome Martin Gayford, Senior Research Fellow in the History of Art at the Humanities Research Institute, University of Buckingham. Over three decades, Martin has written prolifically about art in a series of major biographies, as well as working as the art critic of The Spectator magazine, The Sunday Telegraph and Bloomberg News. Today he joins us to discuss his magisterial book, Michelangelo, His Epic Life. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on Not Just the Tudors. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation.
1: Well, me too. Thanks for inviting me.
2: You've worked in the art world for over three decades. You've published works on 19th and 20th century artists. Michelangelo stands out in some ways, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be the only early modern artist you've written a book about. So I'd like to start by asking why him? What was the appeal? And did it change as you got further into the research as well?
1: There are a couple of reasons why Michelangelo. One is he's a towering genius and absolutely fabulous artist. But the other one, which is, I suppose, rather more technically to do with writing a book, is that he's the best documented artist, not only of the 16th century, but actually pretty well until the late 19th, 20th, there is a phenomenal amount of documentation about Michelangelo. And that, I thought, would enable me to get going and do the sort of, I'd like to do a rather close focus examination of my subject. So I wanted to make the reader feel that they were practically in the same room with Van Gogh, for example. Who can you do that with that deep in the past? And the answer seemed to be Michelangelo. Even leaving aside the libraries and libraries of secondary material about Michelangelo, just the five volumes of letters actually by him and to him, the two volumes of letters associated with him, the volume of contracts, the volumes of his record of jottings and the memoranda of expenses, and so on. It just goes on and on. And the first, as told to, biography of an artist's in world history.
2: Well, you've heard it here, folks. There is just as much about the early 16th century in terms of documentation, about significant people anyway, as there is when we get to the 19th and 20th centuries. And I completely agree. Sometimes what it feels like one is drowning in the material. Shall we... Start by thinking about his life. He was born in Caprese in Tuscany, in Italy, yes. in 1475. And as a young boy is sent to study grammar in Florence.
1: He only lived in Caprese for about three weeks. So that's a little bit misleading. His father was occupying a minor bureaucratic post there, and then they returned to Florence. So he was a Florentine.
2: So it's just a coincidence that he is born in Tuscany. Can you give an idea, though, of then the world that he would have known in Florence? And the sort of things that might have been sources of inspiration for him as a young man.
1: Yes. Well, it comes in stages. He was born into a family, the Buonarotti, who I described in the book, I think, as decayed gentry, or living in genteel poverty. In previous generations, they'd almost made it into the wealthy class and then. For one reason or another, steady decline had set in, and they were barely living on a rather small private income, really, by the time Michelangelo came along. And his family, who I think by and large he detested, although he devoted a lot of effort to trying to improve their financial condition, very much like one of his brothers, But his family, I think, had rather narrow intellectual and artistic horizons. They certainly were vehemently opposed to his idea of becoming an artist to the extent of his father and his uncle considering corporal punishment repeatedly before his will turned out to be stronger than theirs. And he went off to become an apprentice at the age of 12. He was surrounded by the Florentine Renaissance and had got to learn of it, I think, through fellow teenagers in the neighbourhood. One of his older friends, Granacci, was already an apprentice to Filipino Lippi. So he was doing something which Michelangelo probably saw as rather glamorous and exciting in comparison with sort of things his family did. So he then moved into the workshop world of the Florentine artists, which was no doubt interesting enough. But the very unusual thing that happened to him to the extent that it has been a subject of scepticism by scholars is that he was talent spotted by Lorenzo de' Medici, who was effectively ruler of Florence, at the age of 15 and entered the Medici court, which was at that point arguably at least the intellectual hub of Europe. He would sit at Lorenzo's table next to the leading writers, thinkers, historians, philosophers, of fifteenth century Italy, and at age fifteen Michelangelo had this door open, and he went through it, and so he had really quite astonishing training in that regard.
2: So to pick up on a couple of things you said, you talked about his family's shabby gentility, I suppose. Do you think that this sense of believing that they have descended from the position they ought to be in was a driving factor for Michelangelo?
1: That seems to be part of his mental landscape. He had a fantasy that he was an aristocrat to the extent that in the early 1520s, when he was already in his 40s, he was persuaded by somebody that his completely negligible Florentine forebears had been descended from Countess Matilda of Tuscany, who's one of the leading figures of the early Middle Ages in Northern Italy. So it's a bit like saying, well, we're descended from William the Conqueror in British terms. And perhaps that fuel is, in a strange way, his modernity as an artist. I did a book two or three years ago with Anthony Gormley, who's a great Michelangelo fan. And one of the things Anthony said about him is he's absolutely the first modern artist because he doesn't, only to, or only to a limited extent, take orders from patrons. He gives orders to himself. And sometimes that's literally true. Some of the works we know, he did his own satisfaction. But we also know he wrote to his nephew wrongly, really. He'd never been a jobbing artist. I've never kept a shop. He wrote to his nephew Leonardo. And he wanted people to stop calling him Michelangelo the sculptor. Here in Rome, I'm just known as Michelangelo Buonarroti, and that's it. So he wanted to move himself socially to the world of people who made art for a living.
2: And with regard to that ascent, you mentioned his apprenticeship with Domenico Girandaio and the post with Lorenzo de' Medici. What can you tell me about these masters? What do you think... Michelangelo owes to them because in later life he's determined to say he hadn't ever been taught anything by anyone.
1: Yes, although I think he would have made Lorenzo the major she a partial exception for that. I think he was prepared to be taught by the most famous and glamorous aristocratic patron of the age. And he probably was, because according to his, I've called it an as told to biography, the life of Michelangelo by his pupil Condivi, which is just full of a lot of quotes from him. According to that, Lorenzo would call him into his private quarters to look at antique gems and little antiquities, all sorts of things from what was actually a fabulous collection of small scale antiquities. So he did learn from Lorenzo and he did learn from Ghirlandaio, although he was very keen to say he didn't. What he would have learned from Ghirlandaio is all the nuts and bolts of how to paint for example, a fresco. When he started on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, he never apparently painted a fresco on his own behalf, but he probably assisted Ghirlandaio, and he obviously knew how to do it from the get-go. What is a considerable mystery in Michelangelo's studies is how exactly he learned to sculpt, because Ghirlandaio wasn't a sculptor. There were a few people around in Lorenzo's circle who might have helped him, but that remains a mystery because Michelangelo chose not to tell us.
2: (laughs) Talking of his sculpture, two of his earliest surviving sculptures are from 1490 to 92. So he's, what is he, about 16 years old? The Madonna of the Stairs and the Battle of the Centaurs. Can you describe these for me and what you think they showed or revealed about Michelangelo to his contemporaries?
1: The Madonna of the Stairs is a relief, very low relief, of the Madonna and child in a setting with a sort of staircase in the background and so forth. And it's very much in the style of Donatello, who died before Michelangelo was born, but was the dominant figure of the Florentine Mm -hmm. Renaissance in the mid-15th century. And a point which is relevant to Michelangelo all the way through is that actually it's pretty clear that the leading artists were sculptors, architects at almost every point. And Michelangelo was the heir to that succession. And the big figure before him was Donatello, Bertoldo, who had been a pupil of Donatello's, and he's one person who could have taught Michelangelo, the young Michelangelo, a thing or two about sculpture but he was a specialist in bronze, not in stone, which is what Michelangelo did. And what we see in that one, Madonna of the Stairs is Michelangelo taking up and riffing on the Donatello mode, but also showing what he's not very interested in. The perspective background isn't very effectively illusionistic in the way Donatello would have done it, and Michelangelo actually he seemed to have his words as an 87 or 88-year-old man saying that he was never interested in perspective. There's a copy of Condivi's life, which he seems to have gone through with a later assistant who was reading him out bits, and in the margin there are little notes he says in other passages he was very studious and he learned anatomy and he learned this and he learned that and he learned his perspective and in the margin it says not perspective because I didn't think it was a very useful thing to know
2: isn't that funny now. In terms of his life, if we get to 1492, we have the death of Lorenzo de' Medici, which of course brought a period of political instability for Florence, and that means for Michelangelo as well. And I wonder if you think he might have been prolific sooner if the political situation hadn't been so challenging?
1: He had a bit of a patronage problem from the death of Lorenzo, which took place in April 92. And the battle Relief, which actually I didn't get around to talking about. That was a work which was clearly commissioned by Lorenzo, was intended for Lorenzo, and it wasn't delivered because Lorenzo died. For the same reason, it was never finished. Lorenzo's heir, Piero, was a bit of a useless character, even in the view of the Medici family, and certainly in the view of a lot of Florentines. And he did commission a few things from. Michelangelo. One of them was a sculpture apparently in snow, so obviously that didn't last. Another one was a large marble of Hercules, which was taken to France, where it seems to have dissolved in the gardens at Fontainebleau. Marble doesn't stand up very well to northern weather conditions. And then when Piero fled, there was Savonarola, who was presiding over a regime which explicitly disapproved of the kind of art that Michelangelo produced, although Michelangelo seems to have had quite a high opinion of Savonarola personally. But people were putting naked statues on bonfires by 1495, so it wasn't a very good place to be carving them or trying to sell them. All of these are reasons why he went to Rome in 1496.
2: So we've got him in Rome and I thought perhaps maybe one way to talk about his work would be to discuss many of those that people are going to know and to kind of build up some sense of context around them. Can we start with his two small statues, Cupid and the young St. John the Baptist. It's a wonderful story about almost landing himself in a lot of trouble.
1: Yes. The Cupid is fascinating because it was a forgery. and As is common in biographies, Michelangelo, there's a certain amount of foot shuffling and evasion going on when the Cupid is discussed. And The point about the Cupid was that it was sold as an antiquity. It was Probably based on a genuinely ancient marble in the Medici collection. And someone suggested that it could be buried in the ground and therefore artificially aged and dug up after a bit and sold for a higher price as an antiquity. And this scheme came unstuck. It succeeded, it was sold to a Cardinal in Rome, who was very wealthy because he was related to the previous pope and a collector of antiquities, he bought it for two hundred ducats. But then the guy who'd sold it to him felt he deserved, having done most of the work, deserved a large cut. And the person who was a junior member of the Medici family, Michelangelo, was in partnership with, also wanted a cut. And so Michelangelo himself was getting rather a small amount of this two hundred ducats. And so somebody told the cardinal that this wasn't actually an authentic antiquity, and he asked for his money back. But he obviously liked it so much that he asked his assistant, a Roman banker, to find out who'd actually done it. So this guy, who was called Gallo, rode off to Florence and asked around and finally knocked on the Monarotti door and discovered it was Michelangelo. So these two of them go off to Rome together. And he sets himself up in Rome. So the whole thing worked out well from his point of view. But then he tries to do an antique-style Bacchus, and he doesn't like it because Michelangelo is shown Bacchus as drunk and almost about to fall over, which is not how this cardinal really wanted a work in his collection to have seen. It was a bit indecent, and he'd gone slightly off-script there. So he then found himself without a patron in Rome at which point we could discuss the Pieta, which is really his breakthrough work.
2: Which, of course, is Mary holding her dead son, Jesus. David as well, both completed 1497 to 99, so he's now in his mid-twenties. Why then? What do you think about the conditions were so right that he could produce two such incredible sculptures?
1: Michael financial late 1490s was hanging on because he'd made friends with this character, Jacobo Gallo, he was living in his palace, and Gallo was fixing him up with jobs insofar as he could. And he was in touch with a French cardinal who wanted the kind of funerary monument that you might find in France. But the Pietà is actually much more of a Northern European speciality. It's very common in French churches to have deposition or an entombment sculpture. So he was asked to do that sort of thing, and I think he saw that it was an opportunity to display to the world exactly what he could do. Because actually, up to then, he hadn't produced really an important public work. Although it was known in certain circles that this was a very brilliant young man, the evidence wasn't apparent out in the public realm. And this was to go into a building which was connected with old St. Peter's. It was actually a freestanding, 12th century building, which was very dark and had lighting from above. Originally, you would have encountered the Pieta, which you now see miles away and floodlit in the St. Peter's, surrounded by a rugby scrum of other people trying to sit. You would have been feet away from it and with light filtering down, and you would have got an almost hyper-real sense of Christ's body, and you'd have been almost eye-to-eye with the Madonna and the sort of extraordinary rocky landscape of her mantle. So, tremendous opportunity to show what he could do to everybody. St Peter's was one of the main pilgrimage churches in the world, and he took it. It was installed by 1500, and I think the significant fact is it's the only work he ever signed. It's signed on a band across the Virgin's Mantle. And from that point on, he didn't need to sign anything because everyone knew who'd done it, and he was famous from that point. Then he gallops off to Florence because he sees another big opportunity to put a great big sculpture in a very prominent place because he's heard rumours that this block of marble, which has been hanging around in a cathedral works yard for about 40 years, is going to be offered to new sculptor to do something with, which is the work which became the David. He got that commission by about 1501. And the condition of that stone, I think this is my theory, explains why David has no clothes on, which is an interesting question. And that's always been the sensational, even controversial thing about David is that he is naked. You go on. Well. It had been blocked out badly, according to Michelangelo's biographers, by somebody called Agostino di Duccio in the 1460s, who would have been working in the Donatello tradition. And if he was working in the Donatello tradition, I imagine his David would have been like Donatello's Davids for that sort of public position, i.e. wearing a cloak and Boots and jerkin, and, and there was plenty of drapery. So, this badly blocked out sculpture probably had badly blocked out textiles around it. And the central problem about this block was how on earth, since somebody started carving in a style which is now half a century out of date, nearly, how on earth did you get a new work in your style out of the middle of it? And I think the solution was do it in the antique roman greek way take the clothes off and you lose a whole layer and i think that's what he did and it shocked people and amazed them to the extent that david had to wear a sort of copper bronze fig leaf arrangement for about the first i don't know century or two of his exposure to the world
3: and
2: 365-day returns. One piece that seemed impossible for Michelangelo to complete was the tomb of Pope Julius II, first commissioned in 1505. It took over 40 years to finish.
1: Yeah, it ruined his life, really. That's not what he would have told you.
2: It feels like a paradox. In some ways, he's at the top of his game. He's working for Pope after Pope, and yet you convey... Such frustration?
1: Yes, I think one of these problems was that he oversold things. He got seized with enthusiasm, and his enthusiasm was infectious, and he persuaded patrons to sign up to works which, in this case, were just about impossible, the original scheme, to execute. And, in fact, he thought of things which definitely were impossible. While he was prospecting for the marble lock with a tomb at Carrara, he was struck by the idea of how marvelous it would be to carve an entire mountain above Ferrara into a figure. And he wanted to do it. And he confirmed in this volume, quite which has got these marginal notes, he says, yes, it was a crazy idea that seized me at the time. And if I'd lived four times longer than I have, I would have done it too. And it would have probably taken him about 200 years. Yes. <laughs> anyway, he sold... Julius II, this idea of this work, which would have required 40 marble statues plus bronze reliefs and this and that, not just expensive, because Michelangelo didn't want to use many assistants, so it was really, he was personally going to have to carve it. And... Then, in this case, Julius obviously got cold feet. While Michelangelo was away quarrying, in the best of circumstances, you know, it was going to be an HS2 of a project, and in fact, he was absolutely right. So when Michelangelo returned, the Pope wasn't really so keen and wanted him to do this other job, which Michelangelo saw as an absolute nightmare and a trap and an attempt to destroy his reputation, which was painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling, but there was a terrible falling out. And he was diverted onto the ceiling, then he was diverted onto other things, and then he was diverted onto other things. And the scheme for the tomb shrank, and there are renegotiations of the contract, and he was pursued by the heirs of the Pope. And there were rumors that he cheated the Pope. He was thoroughly punished, really, having this overambitious idea.
2: So let's talk about the Sistine Chapel ceiling, because this in itself is, well, it's not quite carving a mountain, but at 500 square meters more than 300 figures. I mean, it's quite something. And then there's the auto wall painting of The Last Judgment, completed 20 years later. And given what you were just saying about him being quite keen not to use assistance when it came to the tomb, we see that same sort of issue here as well. And I wanted to ask why you think he was so conflicted about having help. Because, you know, this, again, is an almost superhuman feat of <laughs> inspiration and endurance.
1: Yes. I think that the fundamental reason why he got in a mess about assistance was closely allied with the reason why he was so good, which was that he was an obsessional perfectionist. All major artists, control freaks, but... He was really a control freak to Olympic standards of control freakery. And I think what the Pope probably expected him to do, and what he actually seems to have done initially, was send for a team of skilled fresco painters from Florence, whip up a design. Pope suggested the Twelve Apostles, which is really 12 figures, maybe some decorations, some extra things, wouldn't be that hard to do. But Michael Angelo, first of all, hugely elaborated his design, saying that the Twelve Apostles wasn't interesting enough. I imagine he began to get ideas about what he could do on the ceiling. Then he sent for a team from Florence. The conservation evidence seems to suggest that they started probably with a Episode of the flood around there, and did a little bit and he had a look at it. He thought these people aren't really quite good enough to work with me, although they got relatively famous and friends of his so it had the Sistine Chapel doors locked against them, according to the story, and carried on, not actually single-handed, but probably doing the basic weight of the figures of the important bits. And he would have had a very small team. I say that because his accounts don't suggest that he had enough money to pay many people. He would have had people to sort of do the plastering and do the inessential details and so forth. But he painted it all himself, and he got faster and faster. One of the last scenes he painted, which is the panel of the separation of light from darkness, which I absolutely love, is the abstract expressionist world of God in the middle of the universe doing this fundamental act. You can tell how long is taking to paint because there's a line around this called the Jonata. the day's work that's one day's work he painted that in one day so he was obviously really going at speed by the time he got to the end
2: that's incredible we've heard a great deal about Michelangelo the sculptor and the painter but he was also a prolific poet credited with the first large sequence of poems from one man to another in the modern tongue so it's predating Shakespeare's fair youth sonnets by some 50 years given that you've immersed yourself in his life, which do you think gave you the greater insights into his personality? Is it his literary or his visual works?
1: Well, I think the answer to that probably is the visual works, but the poetry is very interesting. I think Michael occasionally fantasised about interviewing him. I think he would have been a tricky interviewee, but I probably could get answers out of him. He himself affected modesty about his sculpture, but he was modest in the context of I know that I'm the most famous artist in the world. Everybody knows that. I think he was genuinely a bit modest about his poetry and he felt he was a semi-amateur. He was rather pleased, I think, to circulate in literary circles. At the time, there would have been good reasons for that. He left school when he was 12. He would have been learning Latin at the grammar school in Florence, but he obviously didn't finish that course. And there's a dialogue which was published by one of his Roman friends in the 1540s which is about Dante, specifically trying to answer the question how many days Dante and Virgil spent in purgatory. So that's a real sort of Dante nerds question, really. <laughs> and, and anyway, there are some preliminary remarks. And one of the things Michelangelo says is how ashamed he is of not speaking Latin. He wonders, he was then 70, if it's too late for him to learn it properly at this date. So that was an area in which he had, in a way, well-founded senses of inadequacy. And he wasn't a polished poet. Judgments of his poetry differ, I think, according to how modernist your taste is. I think this is really going by native speaker Italian reactions. I think if you're expecting a sort of smoothly flowing petrarchan you get some... syntactical and grammatical snarl ups in Michelangelo's verse and people who would go for T.S. Eliot like that and people with different tastes think that maybe this is a sign of a poet he could manage a few lines but then we're going to hit trouble. I'm not quite sure how high his attainments were as a poet but he's obviously given constraints pretty good and the odd line really does tell you about his inner life. He's always writing about being a prisoner of love, being bound, being deprived of freedom of will. is something which comes up. He invented these prisoners or slaves who were going to be all around Julius's tomb. Julius didn't tell him to propose his monument, I shouldn't think. It was an idea which somehow went very deep with him.
2: Talking of love, I'd like to talk a bit about his character because, I mean, one of the things we know about Michelangelo is he almost sort of starts the idea of the melancholic, gloomy genius. He enjoys being solitary. Some people found him rather dislikable. But you make it clear in the work that he did have some very close friends, male and female, that he truly loved. So what can we learn about him from the evidence? What can we learn about him from these relationships?
1: I got a letter from Frank Auerbach, after I published this book, and <laughs> Frank said, things. I see the artist type hasn't changed much in half a millennium. And I think that's true. I think one recognises traits in living artists, which Michelangelo clearly had, one of which is absolute driving determination to do the work that came ahead of anything. So he tended to surround himself by a close sort of, all-male family-type group of assistants and supporters who worked with him and helped him to work, and he was very close to. And certain individuals he really took to in a big way. I mean, Vittoria Colonna was an example, of course, and uh, Tommaso uh, de Cavalieri, who was his great love of the 1530s, 40s period. But if he didn't take to you and you were getting in the way of his work, you might get an extremely hostile brush-off. And he was also obviously continuously suffering from anxiety, stress, and neurotic from the get-go. So he was quite a difficult personality. But personally, I'd like to add, I think he's not only understandable, but actually rather likeable.
2: Well, that's really interesting. I also wanted to ask you, in terms of sort of personal details about him, what you think his work tells us about his evolving faith?
1: Here, the poetry again is a very useful source of evidence. One thing it tells us was that I think he was absolutely sincerely very devout. Another thing it tells us is that, which goes back to likability, by the way, is that he had a sense of humor. There are one or two comic verses by him which are actually quite funny. I think it could be funny, but he had powerful faith, which I think not everyone in the 16th century necessarily had, and probably quite a few artists had a much more lightweight, dispensable kind of religious faith. Telling line in Condivi is that he still heard Savonarola's voice echoing in his mind, and he couldn't have heard that later than 1496. So that's sort of getting on for 60 years, and that was millennial apocalyptic preaching and also tremendously strident denunciations of sodomy, which was uh, considered to be a sin which the Florentines were particularly inclined to. And of course, Michael himself might have accused himself of So I think his religious faith was possibly a bit of a torment to him. It's all about Christ. There are Madonnas in his work and in his poetry, but it's almost all personal devotion to Christ, which doesn't mean that he was a Protestant, although he had friends who were on a bit of a spectrum who were on the Protestant end of the Italian religious spectrum but that he had a distinctively mid-16th century Christological attitude mm.
2: yes Could I ask you about his attitude to art as well? What I mean is, do you think he had a personal ideology? In other of your books, Rendezvous with Art, you report this horrifying fact that museum and gallery surveys show viewers rarely spend more than 30 seconds looking at an artwork. And you suggest we ought to slow down and savour seeing to experience physical and psychological pleasures of art. And so I wonder whether you think Michelangelo created work with an expectation of what the viewers should think or engage with it. Did he regard art as a relationship between himself and the beholder?
1: Well, one of the intellectual attitudes which he would have picked up around the dining table at the end of Lorenzo de Medici was Platonism or Neoplatonism. And I think all through he feels that beauty, art, is... A way of making contact with the divine, and that's one of the ways he would have defended himself against the accusation that he's, for example, filling the Pope's private chapel with nude bodies. Some people said it may it look like a bath or a brothel, and there are moments when he was controversial. I think his view was that God made man in his image, and therefore, through the beauty of the human body, you were getting closer to divine truth. So yes, he would have thought it was important that people pay attention to that. But there's also, I mentioned his comic verses, there's a verse quite scatological about getting old and how he's constipated and he's got a hernia and his spider seems to have built its web in his ear and all the sort of problems he had in his mid-70s. It's all quite funny, but one of the things he says is, I sometimes wonder why I pay so much attention and labour to making these big dolls. I don't quote exactly, but that is an astounding thing for the greatest sculptor probably who's ever lived.
2: Yeah, that really is. And I wonder if that says something about feelings, because when in his 70s he talked of his art, it was mostly as a service done to certain great rulers, so it's something done under compulsion. Do you get a sense that he kind of felt that his art was transactional, really, rather than something that provoked feelings in him?
1: Well, he carried on the last 15 years or so of his life. He was the architect in charge of rebuilding St Peter's, which was probably the largest architectural project in Europe. So he had quite a lot to do, but he didn't actually have any painting or sculptural commissions. But he carried on carving every day until virtually the day he died. And the two last sculptures which are the bit or entombment you might call it in Florence and the unfinished one which is in Milan those were done for himself they were to go on his tomb they were memorials for himself and I think the fact he carried on doing that everyday exercise with the palette and the chisels indicates that he was absolutely part of his life and that he might have had moments of depression, really. earth, you know, why that earth should I bother to paint the Sistine's thing or whatever it is. Well, that was because he was a depressive, but he didn't give up. And so it, clearly it was important to him.
2: If he were alive today, what do you think he would make of the way his pieces are curated and categorised? Do you think he would see his works as a coherent body, maybe with distinct periods? or? Do you think he would assemble his works in a different manner?
1: Well, in a way, he and Vincent van Gogh have another thing in common, which is posterity has been rather kind to their work. Vincent's, through no action of his own, mainly ended up in a dedicated museum in Amsterdam with a staff of scholarly and energetic curators looking after them. That's the ideal thing for an artist to have. So when your works are scattered to the four winds all over the place, it gets easier for people to forget. Michael Angel essentially, virtually all his painting, except for one piece in Florence, too, in the National Gallery, probably, is in the Sistine Ceiling. So there's a permanent one-man exhibition, which is seen, generally speaking, by as many people as can be crammed into that space every day. And I think just in terms of prominence, he couldn't really complain about that. I think the tomb is probably, would have would still be a source of unhappiness to him. I think his idea was that, that was going to be a monument to him every bit as much and probably much more than it was to Julius II, and it would have been in his medium of choice and the fantastic display of what he could do with Marvel. So I think he'd be rather sorry, probably, about the tomb as it exists, although he did put it in place as it is, whether he'd be happy with the rest of it with David, not in the front of the Palazzo Vecchio anymore, but... I think he'd understand that. He was always worried about whether the marble would weather. reading between the lines.
2: Okay, finally then, the labour of love you engaged in to write this book is a little bit like Michelangelo trying to complete (laughs) Julius II's tomb as we talked about the vast documentary evidence alone. So I'd love to know what has stayed with you this time after the ink, as it were, has dried on your manuscript. And do you think it is the same thing that drives millions to think about him to this day?
1: Well, towards the end of the process of writing that book, I had a dream in which Michelangelo offered me a glass of wine, which (laughs) I take it was some of the white wine which his nephew in Florence was always sending him barrels of. I took it that that was a sign of muted approval on his part. Well, my intention, I start off by saying, was to get close to him. I think I did end up with quite a strong sense of him, what drove him, and what his times were like, and how difficult it really was to power your way through all that political chaos and all those psychish, rich, unhelpful people who were running the world. So a feeling of him, and also what an artist is. I suppose. As I hinted before, reading back from a living artist, guess what? Michelangelo might have been like but the same thing works in reverse you can see the same preoccupations and ambitions in artists still so I found out apart from about the 16th century and about him specifically I think it gave me a sense of what art is about I might say that's also aided by the fact that I think Michelangelo had a huge effect on our sense of what art is. I think we wouldn't have the same concept of art if he hadn't lived. It's demonstrable that academic teaching of art for centuries after his death was affected by him. I think the model is still there in artists' minds. So that's, I suppose, what I came away with.
2: Well, thank you so much for talking to us about this epic life, as you call it in the title of your book. It has been wonderful to have a sense of him from you. And I do urge people who want to know more to pick up Michelangelo, His Epic Life by Martin Gayford. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you. It's been fun.
2: to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars, and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find, not just the tutors.
1: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall.